Hello, and welcome uh, to another edition of George Fox Talks. Uh, I'm Gary Tandy, an English professor at George Fox in my 13th year at the university. Uh, my primary research area is uh, C.S. Lewis and his circle. Uh, so I'm very excited um, because of that interest uh, to talk with our guest today, who is Joseph Pierce. Uh, Joseph is a native of England. He is uh, an internationally acclaimed author of many books. We're grateful that he's taken a few minutes out of his day to uh, join us here on this podcast. So welcome, Joseph. It's very good to be here. I wonder if we could begin um, by having you share a little bit about your own life, uh, some of your early influences, uh, both spiritual and literary. Um, and I know from looking at your website that you have a rather unique background uh, that was not necessarily uh, that you weren't a Christian in your early days uh, at all. Uh, but that you converted to Catholicism in your 20s, I believe. So anyway, please share whatever you would like uh, and feel comfortable with about your early years and maybe a little bit about how that uh, conversion process actually happened. Yeah, well, the, the, the key thing is that, that I'm aware of the power of these literary figures uh, of which we're going to speak because um, because they were very influential upon my own conversion. So as a, a, a young man, I was very anti-Christian. Um, I was a, a radical in politics, full of hatred. Um, uh, violence, lived a very sort of revolutionary existence, if you say, involved in radical politics. And it was, first of all, through being introduced to the writing of G.K. Chesterton, uh, that I started to take Christianity seriously, um, first of all, critically, but seriously. And then more and more, when I came to realize that all the things I liked about Chesterton were due to his Christianity, that they were derivatives of it. And then, of course, I then started going deeper. And it was actually through Chesterton that I, that, that I came to discover C.S. Lewis. Mm. It's the opposite way of many people. Many people discover Chesterton through Lewis. I actually did it the other way around. I discovered Chesterton first and then Lewis. And other writers such as Hilaire Belloc and uh, John Henry Newman, um, uh, Shakespeare, of course. Um, so uh, I, I was uh, very aware of the power of these writers in bringing people to uh, to the truth. And also to bring people to an, an acknowledgement of the connection between faith and reason. Mm -hmm. That was crucial to me because when I was young, I, I thought you had to choose. You either had to be rational or religious um uh and you had to make the choice uh and it, you know being rational might make you miserable but at least you were being reasonable <laughs> whereas being religious basically might make you feel better but you're living a lie mm -hmm. uh and then it's through the through the, the reading of chesterton and lewis and, and 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 newman and some of these other great um christian intellectuals that i came to uh to understand that fides et ratio that faith and reason are actually indissolubly married they're mm -hmm. inextricably connected and and if you separate them you 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 don't, you don't just lose faith you lose reason also so coming to that uh, acknowledgement uh, was crucial to my own conversion and i was received into the church in 1989 when i was 28 years old and uh, and i sometimes say my first book was a biography of chesterton yeah. and i sometimes say that that was an act of thanksgiving uh an act of thanksgiving to god for giving me chesterton but also an act of thanksgiving to chesterton for giving me god <laughs> how did you come across that book 
Well, you know, I was interested in politics and economics, and I wasn't the least bit interested in religion and was very anti-Christian. Um, but but uh, there was one essay in, in one particular book by Chesterton. Uh, the book was called The Well and the Shallows uh, that was on economics. And someone said, you should, you should read that, you know, that one essay. And I, and I thought, well, this person Chesterton is worth reading for that one essay. I'll read the whole book. And the rest of the book was a defense of Christianity against various modern and modernists, modernist attacks upon it. So that, that, that's, that's, that's the title of the book. The Well, right, that, that's, that's the Christian church, and The Shallows, which is everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I didn't obviously agree with everything Chesterton said as regards Christianity, but I at least, at least I, two things. I tell you, I, the best way of my explaining this to you, actually, Gary, would be that my experience of first reading Chesterton was very similar to C.S. Lewis's. Mm-hmm. So uh, in, in C.S. Lewis's book, Surprised by Joy, he, he explains his first reading of Chesterton when he's in the British Army during World War I in the trenches, and he comes across a book of Chesterton's essays. And at the time, Lewis is an atheist. Yeah. And he says, you know, you would have thought that Chesterton would be the least con- conducive of authors to me. But I said, I couldn't help liking him. Um, he liked his sense of humor. Uh, he liked his personality. Uh, he just wanted to be with him. And he said he actually likened it to, to falling in love. He said, you might actually fall in love with someone you know is much better than you. Uh, and you enjoy their company without ever actually wanting to be like them. And so this was Lewis, the cynical atheist, uh, you know, n- couldn't help liking Chesterton. And he said that Chesterton had more common sense than all the moderns put together, except, of course, his Christianity. So, <laughs> so, so when I when I first read Lewis saying that, I thought, Lewis is great because... Uh, that's what that's my position. You know, Chesterton has more common sense than all the moderns put together except his Christianity. Mm-hmm. And then I bought that book by Lewis, not realizing that was surprised by joy. That was Lewis's conversion story. And here I am now hawked to two Christian writers, even though I'm not a Christian myself. And I started reading everything I could by Lewis as well as everything I could by Chesterton. And, and the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, maybe it's in that autobiography of Lewis, by Lewis, that he says... Something like you can't be too careful, you know, in what you read because you know, you, he started reading all these Christian books himself, and then ultimately, yeah, I think the quote know. is it's surprised by you're, you're correct. It's surprised by it. I think he says that an atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. Is the actual yes. quote? Yeah, very good, so. very good. Uh, and also, I was thinking on Chesterton, uh, Dorothy L. Sayers was very influenced by him as well. Yes. And, I mean, uh, she said somewhere that, that Chesterton blew out of the church some uh, old stained glass windows of very questionable design uh, and allowed the, uh, I think it's allowed the uh, the winds of orthodoxy to blow through the church like fresh air or something, something along those yeah, lines. Yeah. yeah. I know she went to hear him speak several times uh, in London. Yeah. And uh, like Lewis, was was very much influenced. And I think both Lewis and Sayers kind of show that influence of Chesterton in their writing, don't they? They do. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you about, I was intrigued by the title of one of your books, uh, Literary Converts. Um, was that, uh, tell me a little bit about that book. What, what, was, what was your focus in that book? Well, you know, I I was a convert to the faith largely through the influence of these literary figures, okay. and so uh, converts are often fascinated by the converts. You know, uh, uh, you know, because we we might all ha- you know, have paths that lead us to Christ, but no two paths are the same. So I became interested in studying these literary converts um, to Christianity in the twentieth century. 
Um, and as I did so, I began to realise that they weren't, they were all energising each other. I think, I think if I remember correctly, it was Barbara Reynolds, who was a great friend of Dorothy O'Sayers. Mm-hmm. And when Dorothy O'Sayers died, I was somewhat um, uh, providential that Dorothy O'Sayers died in the middle of paradise. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when she was translating Dante's. When she was Dante's translating man. Dante's paradise. And, and Barbara Reynolds actually finished the translation. Yeah. So I, I interviewed her for my book, Literary Converse, actually, and she was living in Cambridge. And uh, it was she, I think, that said this was, this was, a, this was um, a movement. Uh, he says that these, these were minds energizing each other. And then when I realized that what I'm talking about, I'm not, I'm not looking at individual, individuals coming to Christ separately, that there's actually a very good evangelical movement going on in the 20th century with these literary figures energizing each other. I think it's also she that said they were a network of minds. So this idea of a network. And it actually made the book much more difficult to write mm-hmm. because the easy way to write it would have been to just have a separate chapter on each of the writers. But I decided to actually make it a history book going through chronologically from 1900 with the death of Oscar Wilde. Uh, right through to the death of Graham Greene in 1990. And there's certain times, by the 1920s and 1930s, so many of these writers were interconnected with each other in terms of, in terms of mutual uh, um, influence that you, I was trying to weave you know, numerous uh, sources as threads into one hopefully seamless garment. And, 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 and that, that, was, that was tricky because it's, it's, it would have been easy for the whole thing to grind to a standstill, right? Just become too stodgy. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a challenge, but I th- I, I'm very pleased with it, and uh, it's it's sold very well. I mean, I think I think it's been quite influential. Who were some of the other writers that you talked about in that book? If you remember? Well, I certainly it it, it reinforced uh, my uh, my my belief that Chesterton was a major catalyst okay. for many other converts. That's quite clear but people I write about it so the, the literary converse in that book C.S. Lewis obviously Graham Greene Evelyn Waugh uh, the war poet Siegfried Sassoon uh, the lesser known war poet David Jones um, Dorothy Orsayes is not a convert but obviously a major part of that movement mm-hmm. Hilaire Belloc's not a convert but a major part of that literary movement um, and I'm forgetting lots of other people as we speak. And Malcolm Mugridge, who what, you know yep. was not just a literary figure, obviously one of the, the first talking heads on TV, but but certainly was a, was a literary figure. So, yeah. so Alec Guinness, who wasn't a literary figure, but he got his own he got his own um, his own uh, chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, How about T. S. Eliot? Did you talk? About of Eliot? course. Thank yeah. you very much for that sin of omission. T. S. Eliot, obviously another significant uh, figure yeah. in that. Uh, the, the poet Roy Campbell, uh, the South African poet Roy Campbell. Um, uh, yeah, so we can carry on. Yeah, very interesting. I, you know, and I find that um, uh, what I've been thinking about lately, and some of the reading I've been doing is uh, we don't give enough credit off often in literary studies, especially to that Christian movement in the early 20th century, right? Uh, because the the modernists tend to dominate that for literary folks. So James Joyce, Virginia Woolf, uh, that whole strain of mo- And then, of course, Eliot was in that uh, initially. But it's amazing when you actually begin looking, as you have, at, at some of these great writers who were also Christians and who were serving in many ways, like Sayers Lewis and Eliot as kind of public apologist, right, for the faith. 
Yeah, uh, mm. and you get you know, so the secular academy has its own biases. Yes. Um, so you know that the Bloomsbury Group, for instance, is a major uh, major part of the the secular academy's understanding of twentieth century literature. But the Bloomsbury Group, as 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 with respect to its impact on on the culture is minuscule compared to the Inklings. Yes. You know, if you look at the Inklings, Lord of the Rings was uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the largest selling work of literature in the 20th century. Yeah. Lion and Witch and Wardrobe's in the top 10. The, the Hobbit's just outside the top 10. You know, where, 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 where in that list is, uh, you know, To a Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf? Uh, nowhere. And, and, and as of other figures in the Bloomsbury group, I mean. Yeah. So th- this is an example of uh, the, the, the Academy being deliberately blinded by its own prejudice. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we forget that, um, I think some writers maybe even call this kind of a Christian renaissance in some ways among the, the literary uh, folks in uh, in Britain. You know, I mean, it was. Time. I mean, if you think about it, um, that uh, the greatest poem of the 20th century is, is probably The Wasteland. And if it's not The Wasteland, it's Four Quartets. It's the same poet, T.S. Eliot, yeah. the greatest poet of the 20th century. The greatest, the greatest epic uh, and the most popular work of literature of the 20th century is the, the, the Lord of the Rings. Uh, my personal judgment, uh, the greatest novel of the 20th century is probably Bride's Heavily Visited by Evening War. Hmm, interesting. Um, and, and, you know, these are all uh, major figures who are converse to Christianity. And, and, and these, are, these are the eminenti, you know, the eminenti of, of, of the literati of the 20th century of people that yeah. came to faith from... Uh, a modern skepticism. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, and this may, this next question may kind of come from that one. Um, I was in, in reading over your bibliography. I mean, you've written obviously a, a good deal, and you've also written on a variety of people and authors. Um, would you say there's kind of a unifying element in your work? Uh, the the, the subjects that you've been attracted to and what 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 do you think that might be yeah well uh, so it began really uh, the i i obviously was brought to faith by chesterton and i didn't believe that any of his any of the biographies of chesterton that existed did him justice mm-hmm. in the sense that i don't believe they they painted the full picture there, there were the bits left out or, or bits that are out of proportion so I thought, well, rather than complain about it to myself, why don't I have a go at, at, at rectifying the situation? So that was the motivation for my biography of Chesterton. And then, as I said, literary converts took me into a study of the whole movement, um, which, which you know, really, really, pre, really starts with the Romantic poets, with with Wordsworth and Coleridge rediscovering Christianity from from skepticism, yeah. um, and so and the neo, the neo medievalism of the nineteenth century, the Gothic revival in architecture, the pre Raphaelite Brotherhood in art, the Oxford movement in in the church. Uh, these were all neo medieval ramifications of romanticism so so i became uh, intrigued by this whole literary christian movement and saw it as a major revival um and so that was my book literary converse and then you know having written the if you like the the backdrop i then wanted to go and study some of these individual writers at greater length so i wrote individual biographies of them so that was the sort of the method in my madness so to speak okay yeah very interesting so you kind of Kind of did the overview in some ways and then went back and filled in the details almost. That's great. Uh, 
Another book that caught my eye was C.S. Lewis and Catholicism. And of course, I'm revealing my interest here but uh, in Lewis. But uh, what did you... What did you learn in that book, uh, writing that book, about the connection between C.S. Lewis and the Catholic faith? Well, you know, um, uh, there, was, there was an earlier book by someone called Christopher Derrick that was called C.S. Lewis and the Church of Rome. Okay. Uh, and it was, and, and I admire Christopher Derrick, but it was a bit acerbic and a bit uh, polemical and uh, a, a bit sort of scoring points for the the, the Catholic Church against Lewis. Oh. And I actually, uh, and Walter Hooper and I, uh, both uh, discouraged uh, Ignatius Press from, from republishing it because we thought, you know, it's, it's not very helpful, it's not very charitable, and uh, it's not about scoring points, it's about coming to understand reality. Mm. Um, and so the Ignatius Press put the ball in my court. So well, if we're not going to do publish that book, then why don't? In fact, I think they actually asked Walter Hooper to write a book on C.S. Lewis oh. and the Catholic Church, and he uh, he dodged the ball by deferring to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I sort of in, I inherited it, uh, and and I was intrigued because um, you know that uh, that Lewis was not a Catholic, um, but he was also not. A Protestant in, shall we say, the stereotypical sense of the word. So, um, you know, he was a, an Anglican, but what does that mean? So, you know, I just want to, I, my, my approach, and I say this at the beginning, is I, I, I want this to be for people who admire C.S. Lewis, irrespective of whether they are Catholics or Protestants. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, if you don't admire C.S. Lewis, you're not going to enjoy this book. If you do admire C.S. Lewis and you have a spirit of... Um, should we say engagement and honesty? Then you'll just you'll just know him better. And you know, at the end, uh, it's not. It's just that that Lewis was. So he, you know, he he went to auricular confession. Uh, one of the last books he wrote, he referred to the um, uh, the Eucharist as the Blessed Sacrament. He said that um, after after the Blessed Sacrament, your neighbour is the closest to you, which is basically talking about the real presence. There's a sacrament. Um, but, you know, he was never comfortable with the papacy. He was never comfortable with um, the the veneration with which Catholics um, Catholics showed the, the Blessed Virgin. So, you know, so there, you know, he's he, he didn't didn't go all the way because he had reservations. And that's it's as simple as that. I mean, the, the, the simplest answer, not necessarily the best, was given by Tolkien. J.R.R. Tolkien was asked, why did C.S. Lewis never become a Catholic? And he laughed. And he said uh, it was the ulterior motive. Mm -hmm. uh, and to explain that, of course, uh, that's a play on ulterior motive. But 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 um, Lewis came from Ulster, Northern Ireland, and you know the the, the religious divide there is tribal. You know, and I, I was very heavily involved in that. It's not about going to church. It's about you're you're born one or the other. Right. You know, you can't you can't you, you, you have no choice. You're, you're if you're born Catholic, it's, it's like like a race. You know, it, it sort of indelibly marks you. Yeah. Um, so for for Tolkien, he was convinced that Lewis sort of never overcame those prejudices. I think that's an oversimplification. If that was if it was as simple as that, there'd be no point writing a book about it, would there? So, <laughs> thank you. Very interesting. Yeah, and of course, as some of our listeners might know. Um, Lewis does refer to doctrines like purgatory in some of his writings, like The Great Divorce, and uh, also um, talks about praying for the dead, I think, in one of his um, 
Yeah, he's actually he, in, a, in a letter to Sister Penelope, the Anglican nun with whom he was a, had, a, had a friendship. Yeah, he said, uh, which I find really charming uh, and somewhat amusing. He said, "If it's allowed, uh, will you come and visit me in purgatory?" <laughs> 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 so right. he didn't only just believe in a purgatory; he evidently believed he was going there. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, and he had a lot of Catholic friends, obviously Tolkien, right. and uh, uh, there was a priest that he wrote. Uh, the Latin letters too. I can't. I think. Remember I think Doctor Havard was a Catholic. Was the, yeah. the doctor decision yeah. that was a member of the Inklings. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I want to go back to one name that you mentioned that some of our listeners might not know, and that's Walter Hooper. Can you tell us a little bit about who Walter Hooper was? And uh, sounds like you knew him, or you had a connection with him. Yeah, I mean, he he and I became. Good friends. Um, he helped me immensely. I think first of all with my book Literary Converts, and yeah. I went to visit him in, in his home in in Oxford. And then he helped me, you know, again with my um, uh, my books on Tolkien that followed that, um, and the book on C.S. Lewis that I mentioned. So we became good friends. He he's actually from North Carolina. We went in opposite directions. So he was yeah. born in North Carolina and ended up living in England, and I, I I'm from England, end up living in South Carolina. So. Um, but, uh, yeah, he obviously died, um, COVID related illness, um, last year, but was a very, very dear friend. And, and of course was C.S. Lewis's personal secretary for the last months of Lewis's life and became a great champion of Lewis mm -hmm. thereafter, devoted his life really to championing Lewis and became the, uh, literary executor of the C.S. Lewis estate. Right. Thank you. Yeah. For filling that in. Um, yeah, we all, all people who love Lewis and Tolkien and these authors, I think, owe a great debt to, to Walter Hooper for sure. Um, well, we've put it off as long as we can. So let's talk about Tolkien a little <laughs> bit. Uh, I know this is the subject of your talk tonight. And um, since uh, many of our listeners or viewers are obviously not going to hear your lecture, uh, because it'll be published, this will be published later, uh, could you give us a little sneak preview? What are you going to talk about tonight um, related to the Lord of the Rings and Christian faith? Yeah, so the, the title of the talk, uh, at least that's the title I've given to it, unless the folks at George Fox have changed it on <laughs> me, uh, is uh, Unlocking the Lord of the Rings. And when it looks at the deeper uh, religious elements, um, so uh, Tolkien said, Lord of the Rings, I'm quoting him word for word here, uh, the Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously at first, consciously in the revision. And then elsewhere, he talks about a scale of significance between his, his author and Lord of the Rings' work. And at the very top of the most significant, of the really significant in this hierarchy of, of, uh, of what we might call creative value, he says, the fact I am a Christian, which can be deduced from my stories. Mm -hmm. So that's the challenge is that, okay, Tolkien himself says he's fundamentally religious uh, and uh, his Christianity can be deduced from the stories, and yet it's not obvious. Obviously, there's no mention of Christ. There's no mention of uh of Christianity in any uh, any organized religion, even so, how does it how does it emerge? And he actually uses the same sort of allegorical techniques as as the medieval uh, authors, uh, which, which shouldn't surprise us because he was, of course, a, a medieval scholar. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, uh, in Beowulf, in the, the final part of Beowulf, and of course, Tolkien was a preeminent scholar on Beowulf. He 
his lecture, an essay, uh, The Monster and the Critics is you know, still considered the seminal essay on the topic. He translated the whole poem. Um, uh, so he knew it very well. And the third part of Beowulf, you know, there, there are what, what I call numerical signifiers. So, you know, Beowulf handpicks 12 followers. Hmm. Um, and of those 12 followers, one's the traitor who steals the goblet from the dragon, raising the dragon's ire. Of the remaining 11, 10 run away and hide in the woods, leaving only one beside him. Um, and at the very end, there are 12 again, um, um, riding on horseback symbolically around the burial mound directed to the memory of Beowulf. There's clearly these are analogical uh, pointers towards uh, the gospel and, and the passion of Christ in particular. Uh, and in uh, the Canterbury Tales, uh, in the nun's priest tale, we're told, I can't the exact wording now, but the story takes place, um, uh, I think it's sort of 30-something days after, uh, it's uh, 32 days after the end of the, of the month in which the world was created, which, was, which is, we're, told, we're told is March. So in other words, it takes place, uh, uh, um, I've got to get it right, I'm, I'm, I'm messing this up, take my <laughs> word for it. Um, but it, the, the, the answer is that, no, that's right, 30, 30 is 32 days after the beginning of the month on which the world is created, which is March, which makes the actual nun's priest tale take place on April Fool's Day, huh? uh, which was celebrated in medieval times. So the the whole of the thing becomes a common, the fall of man, which is that's a fable based upon Adam and Eve and what have you, Genesis, um, is happening on a fool's day. So basically, Tolkien does the same thing. March the twenty fifth is the date on which the ring is destroyed, and March the twenty fifth is the feast of the Annunciation. So that's the date on which uh, the the word becomes flesh, um, God becomes man in the womb of the of the Blessed Virgin. Uh, but also the medieval church and the early church both believed that the historical date of the crucifixion was also March the 25th. Hmm. Now, um, you know, we don't see that because we celebrate Easter as a movable feast. So we don't we don't actually think affix one date to the crucifixion, Good Friday. But of course, it happened on one day in history. And, and certainly uh, the, the early church, the medieval church, thought that was March 25th. So this makes March 25th a hugely significant date because it's the date which the word becomes flesh and in which God, Christ dies for us on, 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 on the cross. So what's destroyed on March 25th? The power of sin is destroyed on March 25th. Um, the ring, we're told in the Lord of the Rings, is destroyed on March 25th. Hmm. And this makes um, the ring synonymous with sin itself. So the ring wearer is the one who is living in sin, has uh, put himself into the darkness of Lord Sauron's world where he can be seen by the, come under the power of, of the satanic demonic forces. Um, and the ring bearer, however, is one who carries the weight of sin without sinning. Who, you know, in other words, the ring bearer is a cross bearer. And if, if this wasn't obvious enough, once the March 25th date decodes it for us, then um, we're told also in the Lord of the Rings that, uh, that Frodo and the, the Fellowship of the Ring leave Rivendell on December the 25th. Hmm. So the journey from Rivendell to Mount Doom, Golgotha, is the life of Christ from his birth to his death. So when you understand these sort of numerical signifiers using dates and numbers, which he gets from the medievals, uh, you see that basically that, that, that it's working on a deep theological level where the, the ring is really the power of sin. Mm. Yeah, very good. Um, 
Yeah, and I, I was thinking about uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, too, as, as thinking of those numerical signifiers that run all the way through there. Yes, indeed. And, of yep. course, that was a poem that Tolkien loved and translated, translated as yeah. well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's very interesting. So um, so that's kind of the the theme of your lecture tonight. And that's pretty, yeah, and I'll, and I'll obviously bring out the the, 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 the Christ figures um, that Tolkien is more subtle than um, than C.S. Lewis. I love <laughs> both, but you know, in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is always a figure of the Son of God in all seven books at all times. Yes. In Lord of the Rings, it's much more subtle. So you have Christ figures that emerge, but only in certain attributes of certain characters, not in the characters themselves. So we, we have the death, resurrection, and transfiguration of Gandalf from Gandalf the Great to Gandalf the White. Yeah. Uh, we have um, uh, Frodo, of course, as the ring bearer, the cross bearer. Um, we have uh, Aragorn as the, as the king, uh, who has the power to take the path of the dead, to, to descend into the path of the dead and to release the dead themselves from their curse so they can actually then, if you like, join in the battle against Satan. So we have various characters that emerge as Christ figures. And then there are everyman figures, those who represent us. So Boromir, who's the, the one who, who who is our represent, he's the only man in the fellowship. Mm-hmm. So how does he respond to the power of the ring? Uh, then you have his brother Faramir, who responds very differently to the power of the ring. And then you have Samwise Gamgee as an everyman figure. And you have Gollum. I mean, to me, the most realistic depiction of the shriveling and shrinking of the human soul when completely and utterly surrendered to the power of sin, so it becomes addicted to the power of sin, a slave to that addiction, is Gollum. I mean, that's, that's a perfect, realistic depiction of the human soul that's completely and utterly surrendered to the addiction to sin. Yeah, wow. interesting. Um, I've always thought the hobbits were also very interesting in terms of... Um, and I, and I wonder if there's a Christian connection between the fact that, you know, the hobbits are the one who, who bear the ring, right? And both the hobbit and the, the Lord of the Rings. And I've always thought of that uh, passage in 1 Corinthians, you know, that talks about the, the weak things of the world overcoming the, and the wisdom of God, you know, being uh, uh, the foolishness of the, of the wise. And there's, a, there's some quotes, I think, in that Council of Elrond um, scene that kind of su- substantiate that, right? Where uh, I think it's um, Gandalf says, you know, who of the wise, or maybe, no, it's Elrond who says, who of the wise would have foreseen this? You right. Know, that the hobbits, do you do you think that's a valid I, I, interpretation? Absolutely, completely. I mean, uh, the, 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 the fact that the hobbits are chosen to be the ring bearers is the exaltation of the humble. Yes. You know, it, 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 it's, it's not the, 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 the powerful and the proud who can overcome the power of the sin, a power of sin, it's, it's the humble that can overcome the power of the sin, that those that know their smallness, and not just know their smallness, are happy to be small. Uh, and that's the whole point of, 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 of the hobbits and the shire, of course, is they just want to remain small. They don't want to be the, amongst the great. They have no worldly ambition. Uh, and it's in this humility that actually their strength is to be found, and that's why they have the calling to be ring bearers. Yes, I agree with that. I think that's really true. And I love that line in the council where, you know, Frodo stands up and says, I will bear the ring, though I do not know the, the way. way, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, beautiful. Which I thought of when you said, gave that idea of the ring bearer versus the, the ring wearer. Yes. Yeah, very good. 
Um, so I teach The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings in some of my university classes. And one of the things that students often want to talk about are the movies, uh, the movie versions of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And I find that uh, even the students who have never read any of the books have seen the movies, right? And uh, so I'm interested in, uh, and I know I'm bringing up a point of great controversy among you know lovers of Tolkien here. But what's your what's your take on the Hobbit movies and the Lord of the Rings movies? Well, the first thing is, um, you know, about the first shall be last, last shall be first. Let's say that the worst shall be first, because um, <laughs> uh, I, I I I want to separate the Hobbit movies, which are awful from the Lord of the Rings movies, which I think are actually quite good. So I think it's first of all to distinguish. The first thing, let's talk about the Hobbit films. I saw the first one, thought it was pretty bad. And then someone told me the second one was worse. So, so I thought, I don't even need to see it. And I haven't, <laughs> haven't watched the second and third. But I think the irony is that Peter Jackson, this is, this is, this is divine comedy, uh, divine irony, um, that Peter Jackson was suffering from the dragon sickness. Mm-hmm. You know, to turn a relatively short children's book into three, three and a half hour epics in order to try to make as much money as he made from the Lord of the Rings films means that he was smaug. I mean, that, that, that really the joke's on him. And the fact that because he did that, the, the, the films weren't very successful because he basically had sold his soul mm-hmm. for, 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 for gold. Um, and the artistic failures, and um, they were nowhere near as successful as they could have been if he'd actually stayed true to Tolkien and not. Yeah. Um, but the Lord of the Rings films, my, my attitude with that is I expected them to be absolutely awful. And so I, my, when I first saw The Fellowship of the Ring, I was greatly relieved because I quite clearly the spirit of Tolkien's there. Yeah. And we can, you know, if, I can, if I put my Tolkien purist hat on, you know, I can find a list of things as long as my arm that are wrong with it. But if I take, if I don't do that and realize that if, if something is being being adapted to a different medium, that you have to allow an element of artistic license. Yeah. The, the key thing is, does he keep to the spirit of the Lord of the Rings uh, and fairly close to the story? Uh, he left, had to leave things out and he added a few things that perhaps he shouldn't. But but generally speaking, that they, they were very good. So my position basically was summed up by a couple of very amusing uh, uh, events afterwards. We decided at the university, which I was teaching at the time, to have a trial of Peter Jackson for the desecration of the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> um, and I actually, a, a colleague of mine on the, in the literature department was the case for the prosecution. And I was the case for the defense. Wow. Uh, and um, the, the, the defense won. And then we did it again at another university um, same same trial. And this was even funnier because the, 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 there they had a jury of 12 hobbits. <laughs> they had undergraduates, that, that, all of whom had bare feet with hair on them. And, and so we had, a, we had a jury of hobbits to decide. But as you get, the fact that I acted as the defense attorney basically will, will indicate that for the most part, I like the Lord of the Rings films, but not the Hobbit yeah. films. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I mean, I, I think the Hobbit... In, in addition to the the big one being, you know, why make three movies? Um, the other thing was just the uh, depiction of um, Bilbo in that film just seemed all wrong to me, yeah. you know. And yeah. then it was like you're taking what we've already described as this humble hobbit who is very nonviolent, right, and, and you're turning him into some kind of, uh, some kind of hero who loves to, you know, stab goblins or something like that. Right. And it's just not. 
You see, it's, it's, it's not, not, it's not in keeping with the spirit of the film at all. One yeah. thing I really remember as well is that Radagast, who's a sort of Franciscan figure, right? I mean, he's he's in harmony with yeah. with with creation. Uh, you know, he's turned into a hippie, and there's there's cheap <laughs> jokes about marijuana, and I thought, come on, and and I, I heard all the sort of fourteen and fifteen year olds in the in the in, in the movie theater sort of smirking and laughing. I thought, you know, that, that he's he's lowered the whole thing to the level of adolescent humor at this point, you know. <laughs> Well, and of course, we have the Amazon version now that's going to come out. Yeah, so which I, I, have no, I have no intention of watching. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, and I suppose in some ways, I, you know, I'm like you, I applaud the Lord of the Rings movies because, and I think it increases interest in the, in the books, which is, yes. is good, yes. you know. Um, so, um, yeah, very good. Uh, I'm interested in going back to C.S. Lewis for a moment here, but also Tolkien, um, what's your view of the friendship of, of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien? Um, you know, this has been a subject where scholars have tended to have a little different opinion on, I mean, we all know that they were friends and that they influenced each other, right, as writers. Um, but some people also say, well, they, you know, toward the end of Lewis's life, they sort of grew apart and they weren't really as, as close. Um, what are some of the ways that you've you've learned uh, that they did influence each other as authors, and kind of what's your view of their uh, the nature of their friendship uh, throughout their lives? Well, as regards that they're being mutually beneficial in terms of their their respective creativity, there's no doubt whatsoever yeah. um, uh, that uh, that Tolkien said that Lewis was not an influence in the way that word is usually understood. Um, but he was a great encourager. And if it wasn't for Lewis's encouragement, he would talk him and never finish The Lord of the Rings. Yes. Um, and then, uh, you know, it was following the, the Long Night talk in September 1931 uh, that, that told when, when Lewis said, uh, Lewis was, was, was not a Christian at this time, and Lewis said, but myths are lies and therefore worthless, even though breathed through silver. So in other words, we love myths because they're beautiful, but they don't tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And therefore, ultimately, they're worthless. And Tolkien said, no, they're not lies. And then he expounded upon what I call his philosophy of myth, which we don't have time to talk about at length now. <laughs> uh, but but at the end of the conversation, you know, within three weeks of that, uh, Lewis was writing to his friend Arthur Greaves in, in, in Belfast, saying that I have definitely started to believe in the Christian God. Uh, and the great, the long night talk with Tolkien and Hugo Dyson had a great deal to do with it. So the situation is that if it hadn't been for Tolkien, Lewis might not have become a Christian. If Lewis hadn't become a Christian, we wouldn't have had all of his marvelous works. And if it hadn't been for for, for Lewis's encouragement of of, of Tolkien, um, that we um, we wouldn't have the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. So you know, ironically and paradoxically, we have Lewis to thank for the Lord of the Rings, and 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 Tolkien to thank for the Chronicles of Narnia and the rest of Lewis's work. Yeah, I sometimes I I I I, I, I wrote something once on this called um, with an awful pun called "When Two Worlds Collude." Hmm. So and yeah, because that that they're, they're they're mutually catalytic sparking of themselves as regards you know the 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 the, the cooling of the friendship there's there's no doubt that there's, there's a truth to that but i i would i would recommend people read a, a very good recently published book uh called tolkien's modern reading by holly Ordway. yeah i've heard of that i haven't yeah read where it. she's done some meticulous research showing basically a lot of the the so-called enmity and animosity between tolkien and lewis was was a consequence of 
bad and dishonest scholarship by Humphrey Carpenter, Tolkien's biographer, mm-hmm. um, which I think it, it, Humphrey Carpenter need somebody needed to actually take Humphrey Carpenter to task, uh, and she's done it. And and so in other words, that I think that it's been greatly exaggerated. The the, uh, the 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 falling out. I think they they you know they they grew apart. That happens with friendships anyway, yeah. um, and there were some reasons. But it's certainly she shows that Tolkien did not despise the Chronicles of Narnia. No. No. You know, um, I think he had some criticism of the line of which the wardrobe, but he recommended the Chronicles of Narnia to his own grandchildren. Yes. Um, so uh, I I think that, that, that it's been greatly exaggerated. And the, and the important thing is that they reconciled, um, uh, and. Tolkien visited C.S. Lewis on his deathbed. Yeah. Um, so regardless of whether there was a drifting apart, there was a reconciliation at the at the, at the key and crucial moment. Yes, very good. I think, and I think Christopher uh, Tolkien's son actually said that they were lifelong friends. You know, in his in his estimation. Um. So, um, yeah, and back on the influence thing, I think one thing a lot of people don't realize is how much Lewis even influence the Lord of the Rings in style, right? And, and in the way it was written, because uh, as uh, Diana Glyer has shown in her research, uh, you know, she's, uh, Lewis actually recommended cha- uh, some major changes to the Lord of the Rings when Tolkien was beginning to write it. Um, told him to cut out the silly Hobbit talk uh, for one thing. And so, um, yeah, I think, uh, I think that idea of, uh, it's just amazing to me that that comment by Tolkien, you know, that the Lord of the Rings would never have been written uh, had it not been for Lewis. And probably The Hobbit never would have been published, I, d- I don't think, because I think Lewis also encouraged him to pursue that as a as a book as well. So, Yeah, I mean, as I said, it, it shows uh, the power of friendship and it shows the power of encouragement and it shows the power of, of inspiration and influence uh, and, and and the power, you know, this great power of love between the two men. Yes. Um, they quite clearly were kindred spirits from the first time that, that Lewis met him. It was 1927, I think, when Lewis, at this point, I think was even an atheist. Um, uh, and they, Lewis joined the Cold Biter and, and yeah. they did that. The, the, the shared love of, of, of shared things brought them together and, uh, and the consequences are just I mean, what, such a gift to the world. Yeah, it's a great story. And I'm always amazed when I'm teaching a class and we're reading both Lewis and Tolkien that a lot of students are surprised to find out they were friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it is a, it's a wonderful story of friendship and influence and the way that we don't create, you know, on our own, right. we collaborate, we, we have people that uh, give us feedback and encourage us. And I think all of us who are writers uh, would agree with that. You know, we can't simply do it on our own. Um, let's return to Tolkien a little bit um, and talk about the fantasy genre for a moment. Um, one of the things I've noticed with our students at George Fox is that Many of the students that we have who come here to study writing and literature uh, really love fantasy writing. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, if you talk to them about, especially the ones that want to be writers and say, well, what do you want to write? Almost 99% of them will say, I want to write fantasy, right? Um, So I think that's, uh, I I guess, one thing I wanted to ask you, if you've noticed that same phenomenon, you know, in the the students you've worked with. 
But also thinking specifically about Tolkien's long essay on fairy stories, uh, which I kind of view as sort of an apologetic for the fantasy genre um, in terms of, you know, just defending its its importance. Um, so what are some of the things in that essay uh, uh, that you value, I guess? And, or maybe another way to ask this question would be, um, why do you think fantasy literature is important? Yeah, well, I, 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 I'm going to uh, confess that I am a disciple of J.R.R. Tolkien. So I, I view fantasy literature the way that he does because he showed me uh, what it signifies. So that long, long essay lecture on fairy stories to which you refer, he talks about various things. He, he, so for instance, he defends fantasy and fairy stories from the attack by modernists uh, and materialists that, that it's escapism. Mm -hmm. But what he says, yes, it is escapism, but it's escapism from a prison. In other words, that materialism attempts to, to stifle the fullness of what it is to be human being by, by placing us in this, this material prism of three dimensions. I mean, in, in, in Brideshead Revisited, the, the most succinct and poetic definition of atheism I've ever read anywhere was in Brideshead Revisited, even in War's novel, when even War turns his back on Brideshead for what he thinks is the last time. It isn't. He thinks it is. And Brideshead... Uh, symbolizes the church, bride's head. The bride's head is the bridegroom, right? Okay. Um, but he turns his back on bride's head for the last time and he says, henceforth, I will only believe in three dimensions perceived with my five senses. Um, and he, he then adds, I've since, I've since discovered that no such world exists. <laughs> uh, so the point is the materialists try to, try to confine us and constrain us within this prison of three dimensions and five senses. Uh, and Tolkien says that is a prison because there are things beyond the prison walls. And if fantasy allows us to think of things other than prison warders and prison walls, then it's something we should we should be pleased about because there are stars outside the prison. <laughs> so that that is it's escape into reality. It's escape into a, a more full reality than, than than materialism, than modernism. So that's the first thing. The, the, the other thing he talks about, there's loads of other things in it, but he says that fairy stories hold up a mirror to man. Mm. Now they show us ourselves, but they show us ourselves in various facets. So uh, we show us ourselves as anthropos, which according to Plato's definition is he who turns up. So I sometimes say that, you know, the animal grazes, man gazes, right? The animal is constrained and confined by instinct. Man transcends that by gazing up in wonder. And, and St. Thomas Aquinas talks about the, a fivefold process of perception that begins with virtue, specifically the virtue of humility. And the humility uh, gives us a sense of gratitude. Gratitude opens the eyes in wonder. Wonder leads to contemplation. And it's only through contemplation that we, we are led to dilatatio, dilation, the opening of the mind into the fullness of reality. Mm. So what fairy stories show us, what the Lord of the Rings showed us is Anthropos, he who can actually transcend the mere evil uh, wickedness of, of, of the cosmos by gazing up. So it's epitomized in the words of Samwise Gamgee, above all shadows rides the sun. Now you have to be able to look up um, to, to know that there's a silver lining to a cloud. If you're looking down all the time uh, as a slave to your appetite, hiding from the light as Gollum does, then you won't be anthropos. But he also shows us homo viator, I mean, a man on the journey, that each of our lives is an individual story and an individual journey, and there's a goal, which is to get to heaven. Uh, every person's life is a quest. 
uh, and we meet, we'll meet dragons, and without the help of God, they'll devour us. So that, that every each of our lives is the same sort of journey that that Bilbo and Frodo goes goes on. Uh, go on. Um, so Homo Viato, and then you have Homo Superbus, you know, proud man who refuses the journey, who wanders off in his own direction and does his own thing instead of instead of instead of taking the the quest. So the the great fairy stories and the Lord of the Rings is perhaps the greatest. Uh, show us um, who we are. They hold up a mirror to man to use Tolkien's words: Anthropos, Homo Viato and homo superbus. Uh, and they show us not just who we are, but who we should be. Mm. You know, as, as, as exactly what Christ does in the gospel, right? That we know that the more we become like Christ, the more fully human we, we become, the more fully we are who we should be. And who we should be is who we really are. Yeah. Mm. Very good. Yeah, I mean, it, that makes me think of, uh, and actually really leads into the, the next question that I wanted to ask. Um, because you talk about that idea of the quest in uh, the Lord of the Rings, which, which I find is a, is something that my students really connect with. You know, if you if you talk to them, one of the things I've done with students is to ask them, you know, what's the difference between a journey and a trip? Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Very good. And uh, and then apply that to the Lord of the Rings because with a journey you have this destination but you don't know how you're going to get there you know right. and you don't know what you're going to encounter along the way and you need virtues right to to, to go on a journey uh, but not on a trip so much you just go there and back and, and right. you're done right yeah so that's one example i think of what the lord of the rings can do for us and um, can teach us but i wonder about uh, other christian virtues that you think come out of reading the Lord of the Rings? Because I mean, part of the reason I ask is our new um, general education package here at George Fox that we've just done, kind of revamped, is sort of based on the virtues. So each course kind of has a particular virtue like patience or compassion or courage or things like that. And uh, it seems to me that the Lord of the Rings is, a, is an especially good source, right, for some of those. Uh, what what would you think about as other kind of virtues that we as 21st century Christians can learn from reading the Lord of the Rings? Well, I think that the whole the whole work, first of all, is set in an objective cosmos, but where evil is demonic, where evil is the absence of the light, it's the shadow. Um, and but but to, to but to be on the side of the light requires great self-sacrifice. I mean, I think we have to understand, I think. I mean, it would be very interesting for someone. I'm sure someone's done it. Um, do a systematic going through the uh, the the virtues, the theological virtues, the cardinal virtues, etc., mm. to to see how they manifest themselves in Lord of the Rings. And yeah. we could all give examples of that. And I'm sure it, it would be very beneficial. But I I want to maybe get a bit more fundamental. That for me, uh, the difference between a Christian understanding of love and a worldly understanding of love is that literally the difference, the difference between heaven and hell. Because a Christian understanding of love is it's a rational choice, mm. that love is inseparable from reason. It's freely choosing rationally to lay down our lives for the beloved, even if the beloved's our enemy. Mm. And of course, the, uh, the hobbits do that with Gollum. Yeah. And if they hadn't done that with Gollum, he wouldn't be there at the crucial moment um, if they'd killed him. 
um, the, you know, the love of enemy uh, is, you know, she, no one loves their enemy because it makes them feel good, yeah. right? They love their enemy because it's a rational choice. And so the world, on the other hand, says that love is it's actually irrational. It's all about feelings and emotions. And I'm in love with you as long as I have these fuzzy feelings. Yeah. And when I don't have these feelings anymore, I'm not in love with you anymore. And I find someone else who gives me those fuzzy feelings. I mean, the two things are, 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 are an, an abyss, an abyss which is as wide as the, the gap between heaven and hell. And I think what Tolkien does at, at root is show us love in that rational sense to make freely to choose freely and rationally to lay down our lives for others. We see it in The Hobbit. We see it in The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Well, and I think you could say that Lewis does a very similar thing in a lot of his books, right? If you think about The Four Loves, where he talks about um, the virtues of friendship and, and love and so on, and how that is really contributing to the flourishing of another person rather than your own good, your own self. Uh, or you look at a book like Till We Have Faces, right, where you have a character who is totally obsessed with her own self-love and um, cannot see past, you know, her own needs, her own desires. Um, so, yeah, I really like that. I think that's uh, that's a great, great way to look at uh, what goes on in both Tolkien and Lewis in their works. Um, well, we're, we're getting close to... Uh, time here, Joseph. So let me just ask you as kind of a final question. Um, what projects are you working on these days? What are you looking forward to writing in the future? Well, I, I actually have uh, the book I'm working on at the moment is something which I, I've, I've, uh, I've been thinking about for a long while. Uh, it's called, um, uh, well, at least the title I've given to it, uh, is The Good, the Bad and the Beautiful, History in Three Dimensions. And the plan is to actually have one chapter for each of the 20 centuries since the time of Christ hmm. uh, with just a thousand or so words on the good. In other words, those who did at least try to do the will of Christ in that century, the bad, those who basically uh, wickedly try to um, crush the will of Christ, the worldly, the secular. Uh, and then the beautiful, the great works of art uh, hmm. that have sh shine forth the splendor of truth. Uh, in every century. So, you know, so to cease, rather than sort of falling into the progressive trap of seeing things are either getting progressively better or progressively worse, depending upon your point of view, to actually see history as this, uh, this perennial struggle between light and darkness, um, between basically the will of God and those who seek to do it and those who refuse to do it, uh, and the, the great glorious works of beauty, which are the consequence of the Imago Dei in us and the imagination, the imagination, mm -hmm. the way that we are creators uh, are meant to sub-create, they're meant to bring beautiful things into being as God himself brings beautiful things into being, to be um, divine in that sense. Mm -hmm. So th th those three strands, seeing history as a tapestry of those three, three strands woven together rather than either an, an ascent or a descent. That's the that's the idea about it. I'm, I'm only in the fifth century. I've got a long way to go. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like an ambitious project. Do you, do you have a target date or are you just going to... Well, I've already, I've, I've already told my publisher I'm not going to hit the original target date. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I, I, I'm, I'm loath to put a date upon it. But it's actually, it's not as ambitious as you think because I'm only planning on a 3,000 words per chapter okay. and just 1,000 words on on each, the good, the bad, and the beautiful. And I know I'll have to leave things out. Sure. I'm not going to try to cover everything. I, I'm going to give snippets and examples, um, not try to cover everything that's ever happened in the last 2,000 years. <laughs> sure. That sounds fascinating. I'll, I'll look forward to, to reading that. Um, well, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been fun uh, for me, certainly. I love to talk about Tolkien and Lewis um, and these other authors. And uh, I hope uh, it's been okay for you. And uh, we thank you for being here at George Fox and look forward to your lecture tonight. Well, it's been a true joy. Thanks for having me. George Fox Talks is a production of George Fox Digital. If you enjoyed this podcast, help us out by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on YouTube by searching for George Fox Talks. And lastly, check out georgefox.edu talks, where we feature lectures, interviews, publications, and a lot more accessible academic content.